Hi, welcome to another one of our Branch Online Sermons. Today we're beginning a new series called Living as God's Church. Uh, In 2012, I did a similar series that looked at what the church is and what the church does. And in my own mind, at least, that was a really pivotal series, a really key series that outlined the biblical pattern that was to shape our life together as God's people. For the last year or so, I've been thinking that it would be good to go back to that topic and to think about it again. But COVID has made the need to think about the church even more pressing. Uh, COVID has raised lots of questions about the nature of the church. For a couple of months, at least, we couldn't meet together at all in person. We, we had only online sermons and we worshipped God only in our own homes and and often with nobody else. For some of us, uh, that's been a delightful experience. Uh, For me, at the start of COVID, it was maybe a little bit of a haven. I rediscovered for myself that idea of personal worship. That is, it's, it's an old idea that Christians in the past knew about, but which I think we've largely forgotten. I would spend on Sunday mornings a couple of hours on my own in personal prayer, and singing and lifting up my heart to God. And that was such a rich discovery. And now that the restrictions have eased, one of the privileges is is that uh, as I grew through that time of personal worship on Sundays, that personal worship has grown and spread across the other days of the week. It's been a great blessing uh, for me in my life. Uh, So much so that uh, every day when I do it, it's such a disappointment when I have to stop Uh, worshipping God, spending time with God, and uh, get on with working. For others too, I know that they've rediscovered the joy of meeting with others in homes, and not just meeting with each other in our homes to eat and talk about the week or sport or whatever it is, but to meet with each other in homes and to uh, sing together and to read the Bible together and to hear the Bible taught together, to pray together across different ages, young people, old people, with families, with those living on their own. For most of us, we've probably never done that in each other's homes before in our life. We've never sung with other Christians in their homes, never maybe prayed with them in their homes, never read the Bible together with them in their homes. And so uh, this time of COVID has opened up rich experiences of doing that with each other uh, in our homes. And because of those rich experiences, I think there are questions that have been raised about maybe what's been missing from our church life. Uh, In that way, uh, these experiences have raised lots of questions for us. Uh, As a body of believers, it's raised lots of questions about what the church is and, and what it does. What does it mean to be church? Those questions have been occupying my own mind for the last few months, and from talking to others, it sounds like some of those questions have been in other people's minds as well. And so the purpose of this series is to help us think through that, to kind of have a strong biblical foundation and framework in which to ask those questions and to think about the answers. So what we're doing today and then over the next six weeks is looking at what the Bible says about the church. What is the church? What does it do? What does it look like? Uh, So that's what we'll be thinking about. 
But today I'm starting in a maybe slightly unexpected place perhaps. I'm starting with our expectations. And that's because I think that one of the things, one of the biggest killers of biblical church life is our wrong expectations of the church. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where someone has told you that such and such a movie is the greatest movie that they've ever seen and you have to go and see it. And so you go and watch that film and as you watch it, you are just bitterly disappointed. You had such great expectations based on what your friend said. And then the reality is just an enormous letdown. But then there's kind of the opposite experience uh, where someone tells you, whatever you do, don't watch that movie. Don't read that book. It is the worst book, the worst movie ever made. And so for years, you dutifully avoid that movie, avoid that book. And then one day you pick up uh, that movie, you watch it, and after a, a kind of a few minutes in, you suddenly discover it is one of the most engaging movies that you have ever seen. You love it. It becomes a kind of a personal favorite. Both of those are illustrations, examples of wrong expectations. Sometimes our expectations can be too high and we're disappointed. Sometimes our expectations are too low and we're pleasantly surprised. Now, that can be bad in, you know, or disappointing in ordinary life to have wrong expectations about a book or a film. But if those kinds of expectations can be unfortunate when it comes to a book or a film, then they can be absolutely crippling when they come to the church. Curiously enough, I think that many people, many Christians, expect either too much, or both, I should say, too much from the church and at the same time, too little. And what I'm hoping to do today is to address that by looking at both the great expectations that the Bible has for the church, but also the difficult struggles, the difficult realities uh, of the church that the Bible speaks about as well. Well, one of, the, uh, one of my favorite places that people have for starting to think about the church is the book of Acts. Acts begins with the... Uh, uh, with the apostles holed up in a room waiting for Jesus to send the Holy Spirit. Uh, and when the Holy Spirit finally comes on the day of Pentecost, the Holy uh, the age of the Holy Spirit-empowered church uh, begins. 3,000 people are converted in one day. The re result is that these 3,000 people, this beginning of the church, is dedicated to hearing the apostles' teaching daily in the temple courts. They're devoted to prayer. They're devoted to meeting together in each other's houses. Uh, they're generously sharing everything that they have with each other. It's this beautiful, this amazing picture. And as you read on through the book of Acts, it really sort of only gets more exciting. More and more people are converted. And again and again, Luke, the author of Acts, has this has these little statements like you find in chapter 2, verse 47, you know, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts is full of kind of vibrant spirituality and what seems like almost daily conversions. But it's not just Acts that has that wonderful vision of what the church can be. Listen to some of the other things that the New Testament says about the church. The church is described by Paul as the body of Christ. Uh, or think of how Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians and many of his other letters. He begins with words like Paul 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. These people, these Christians were holy, Paul says, and faithful. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, or, or don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, and that's what some of you were, <laughs> but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. They were sinners, they were enemies of God, but now they're justified, now they've been reconciled to God, now they've been washed by the Holy Spirit, uh, to be God's own holy people. Or listen to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 17. Paul says, God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. They're the place where God lives, all of them together. Uh, or here's 1 Thessalonians 1. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor, labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The church was a community of faith, of love, and hope. But Paul says it was also a community of eager and powerful witness. He goes on to say in the same chapter... Our gospel came to you not just with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering uh, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, the Lord out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, you don't have to say anything about it. The New Testament vision of the church is an extraordinary vision. It's a vision of people who were sinners, who have been justified by the blood of Christ, washed by the Holy Spirit, people who together are God's dwelling place. He lives in them. He lives among them. They are God's holy people set apart for God's purposes. They're his own possession, people belonging to God. The church is this vibrant community of ongoing learning of the deep truths of the gospel. It's a community of rich and constant prayer, of loving relationships, of sharing and generosity. It's a community of faith, hope and love, a community of work, labor and endurance. It's a community that is growing in number. It's a community of great gospel power and deep conviction. It's a community of joyful and faithful witness. We rightly have High hopes for the church of God, because that's what the Bible, that's the picture that the Bible gives for us. The tragedy, of course, is that often our hopes for the church are actually far more mundane than that. More often than hoping for those things, it seems we set our hopes on lesser things, whether it's good music or a short service or slick service leading or good crèche facilities or a great children's program. And not only do we aspire to those things as the great ideal of what we think church should be, we often see our failure to be able to achieve those lesser things 
as an unbearable shame or an unbearable loss. How could you possibly have a church without those wonderful things? But actually, our failure to achieve being a community of love and grace and worship and delight in God, that barely disturbs us as we long for these lesser and these more mundane things. But when our hearts are fired by God's vision of the church in the New Testament, our hopes are lifted up from those really quite insignificant things to see the glory of, of God in the church. You know, you could have, we could have as a church, we could have the worst music in the world. We could have no kids program. We could have a cold building with no windows and no heating. But if you had sinners saved by grace, indwelt by God, powered by his grace, filled with love, constant in prayer, overflowing with generosity, laboring in the gospel, if you had all those things instead, then you would have all the things that you would ever need and all the things that you ever need hope for. The New Testament's vision of the church is a glorious vision, so much more glorious than often we ever realize. But God's vision for the church is really only one side of the story. If we only consider the passages, the kind of passages that we uh, read just before, if we only think about those passages, we'll come away with a very distorted picture of what the church is really like. Because the truth is that the Bible actually presents us with a much more complicated picture of the church. For instance, we said before that 3,000 people were converted in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. But by Acts 4, Peter and John are thrown in prison and are being dragged before the authorities. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira lie about giving money to the church and are struck dead by God on the spot. And people are terrified. In Acts 6, a disagreement arises between Jewish and Greek widows. The church that is supposed to be this wonderful united place was already, by Acts 6, displaying signs of fracturing and disagreement. And that pattern of incredible success, as well as difficult struggles, continues throughout Acts and throughout the rest of the New Testament. In the passage from 2 Timothy, uh, that is uh, that hopefully you read before that that passage in that passage Paul says that Timothy's church is full of both true believers and false believers. There are what Paul calls uh, vessels for noble use and vessels for ignoble use. That is vessels that you use for fine dining as well as vessels that you use for cleaning the toilet. There's both within Timothy's church. Timothy's church is a mixture of good and bad, of useful and useless, of clean and unclean. There are people in Timothy's church who are teaching lies, uh, undermining the faith of some. Paul says that those lies are like gangrene. It just keeps on spreading, and every time it spreads, more of the church dies, and more of the church needs to be cut off. But consider some of the other examples from the New Testament of similar kinds of struggles. Jude, uh, in his letter, wanted to be positive, but had to change tack, he says, because of the moral and theological problems in the church. He writes, 
Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Why? Because certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and law. <laughs> Jesus, I wanted to be encouraging, but you're under threat from lies and error, from immorality. When Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, that church was being damaged by favoritism and church politics. It was being damaged by sexual immorality, lawsuits, idolatry, and issues in the Lord's Supper. The New Testament, too, tells us about churches that were loveless, self-seeking, in danger of deserting the gospel, in danger of denying the divinity of Jesus, churches which promoted immorality, and churches that sucked up to rich people and ignored the poor. The letters to the churches in Revelation, to the seven churches in Revelation, they tell of a church who's lost its love for Christ. A church which is engaged in worshipping other gods and in sexual immorality. A church which is involved in a weird kind of religious prostitution. A church which is spiritually dead. And another church which is lukewarm. You see, one of the greatest mistakes that we make in thinking about the church is that we expect the church to be perfect. But it isn't. The struggles of the church are written on every page of the New Testament. The glory of the church is there, but so are the struggles. We read all these wonderful statements and amazing statements in the New Testament about the church, those the kind that we saw before, but we forget about all those ones that say difficult things about the church. And the result is that we're then surprised when we find that churches can be difficult places to be. We're surprised to find that churches can be places of struggle, that churches can be places without love, that churches can be places where there's sin. But God never promised that the church, this side of the return of Jesus, would be perfect. The New Testament seems to show that the church, this side of eternity, will always be a mixed Church, a church always in danger from corruption while we, re- while we await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistake that while the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of peace, the church is the front line on the battlefield between Christ and the kingdom of Satan. The church is not a, a haven of peace on earth in some ways. It's a place of war. It's a mixture as long as we wait for the return of Jesus. Here on earth, the church is united but divided, holy yet full of sinners, universal but fighting turf wars, faithful but at times heretical. That doesn't mean that we should be indifferent or complacent about sin in the church. Sin in the church it should grieve us, it should distress us, it should, it should drive us to our knees. Paul encouraged Timothy to work hard for the purity of his church. He didn't write to Timothy and just say, well, you know what? There's sin in the church, but you're just going to have to live with it. No, he says, you're going to have to work hard to deal with it. Timothy is himself to flee from sin. Uh, He's to patiently instruct his opponents. He's to have nothing to do with the godless and immoral people who pretend to be Christians. 
So too, when Paul wrote to the troubled Corinthian church, he wrote in order to to encourage them to leave their sin behind. Uh, When Jude wrote his letter, he he was encouraging the members of the church, not just the leadership, but the members of the church, to take the purity of the church seriously, to struggle for the purity of the church. We need to struggle, all of us, not just the elders, not just the pastors, we need to struggle for the purity of the church. But most importantly, we need to realize that life in the church, this side of eternity, will always be like that. There will always be a struggle, always a fight against sin. Not just other people's sin, our own sin. We need to see not only the glory of the church, but also the struggle of the church, this side of eternity. So we've seen God's great vision for the church, and it's a wonderful vision. We've seen the reality of the church, this side of of Jesus' return. But finally, I want to ask the question, how then do you and I live in the midst of that struggle? How do we live in the tension between that glorious vision and our pre- and that present reality? And to answer that question, I want to go to Ephesians chapter 3, and I want to read some of that. Uh, you might like to look that up. Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm going to start reading from verse 8. Paul writes, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me, to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold Wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. For this reason... I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. There are two, I think, absolutely astonishing statements there about the church that I want to touch on briefly. The first is in verse 10, where Paul says that God's intent was this, that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's the first thing that the wisdom of God should be made known to the universe, to the, to the powers uh, in the heavenly realms through the church. And second, 
which is no less remarkable, in verse 20 and 21, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, to God be the glory in what? In Christ. Yes, of course, in Christ. But also, he says, in the church that God's glory will be made manifest in the church. Those are two of the most astonishing claims that the Bible makes about the church, that in the church, the glory and the wisdom of God will be made manifest, not just to the world here, yes, that, but beyond that, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. But so often it doesn't seem like that, does it? So often it seems as though the church is marred by scandals. It's put down by the press. We don't look have, have to look far to see those kinds of things, to see the disappointments of the church. You might know those disappointments. You might have felt those disappointments. You might have experienced those disappointments. And yet at the same time, at the same time, we can still see glimpses, can't we, of God's glory in the church. When do we see that? When do we see the glimpses of God's wisdom and God's glory in the church? Isn't it when we see glimpses of that glorious vision of the church that we saw in the first part? It's when we see sinners who are justified by Jesus' death, people who are at war with God being reconciled to him through faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't it when we see people being cleansed by the Spirit? People being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. People who are lived in by God. People who are powered by his grace. People who are filled with love, who are constant in prayer, who are overflowing with generosity, who are laboring in the gospel. That's when we see the glimpses of the wisdom and the power and the glory of God. And Paul, knowing that, what does he do? What he does is he gets down on his knees and he prays. He prays for people to be strengthened through the Spirit, that Christ might dwell in their hearts by faith, so that being rooted and established in love, they might be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. What a prayer. What an incredible prayer to pray. And then look what Paul says in verse 21. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Why does, God, why does Paul pray? He prays because God can do more than we ask or imagine. I don't see that glory in the church sometimes. But God can do all more than all we ask or imagine sometimes it seems the church is only struggle. And yet God can do more than all we ask or imagine. I wonder what it is that when you pray, if you pray for the church, what is it that you ask for? What do you imagine that God might be able to do for the branch? Maybe you might ask God to make the branch a church with cutting-edge music. Maybe you might 
ask God to make the branch a church with old music. You might imagine a church with those other things that we thought about before. First class Sunday school. First class youth program. You might imagine a church with uh, an amazing outreach program or, or with a, an amazing sign that grabs people's attention. You think, oh, if only we had a better sign, our church would be a powerful church. If only we had a, a new foyer with, with that or this or a, a new backdrop or a new lectern. New chairs. If only we had a little cafe like some of those other churches have. But you know what? Those dreams are such small, small dreams, aren't they? Because God says that his plan is to do so much more through the church than that. God can do far beyond all we ask or imagine. He can turn sinners into saints. He can turn people who are hardened to the gospel into people who believe the gospel. He can turn enemies into friends. He can use ordinary, faulty, strange people like you and me to make his glory known in the universe. Paul says, that's God's vision for the church. That's his vision for the church. And so he gets down on his knees and praise. Let's make that our vision for the church as well, despite all the all the struggles, and let's pray for that too. Let's do that now. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the church, the people that you have called through the gospel to be your holy people, your saints, your faithful ones, the people called for your eternal purpose, to know you, to love you, to be part of your family. And Lord, thank you that many of us have received that call and have believed in the Lord Jesus. Uh, and having believed, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Lord, thank you that you've come to dwell in us through the Holy Spirit. You've come to renew us through the Holy Spirit. You've come to make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. You've, you've come to renew us into his image uh, to fill us with the fruit of the Spirit. And Lord, we pray uh, that you would do that. Lord, so often when we look at the church, we, we see the struggles, we see the sin, we see the hardships. We feel maybe the anger or the hurt of the past. Uh, Lord, we, we, we struggle. And Lord, uh, we know that that is the reality of the church, this side of eternity. You, you tell us that in your word. But Lord, we ask that you help us to hope for more. Lord, we confess too that so often the things that we hope for are so inconsequential, so irrelevant to the glory, your glory expressed in the church. Lord, all the things that you say are important, all the things that are in your vision for the church, we forget about. And we rest our hopes on all the things that don't matter. Lord, forgive us for that and open our eyes to see your glory in the church, in people set apart for your glory, people reconciled to you through your grace, people who are vibrant in their community life, who are constant in prayer, people who are laboring in the gospel. Lord, we ask that we would be 
that church, that the branch would be that church. Lord, forgive us if we haven't been that. As individuals, as a community, forgive us and make us like the vision that you have for us. Lord, make us to be a people, a place where your glory and your wisdom is made manifest in the world and to the powers in the heavenly places. Lord, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.